As many of you know, I am a big sports fan, and I, I actually have been told that I talk too much about it uh, from a pulpit standpoint. So forgive me if I'm sort of the meat and potatoes pastor instead of the really deeply well-read artist pastor. But uh, I'll just say, uh, I, I even today dread bringing the, my, my introductory story to you because it's just sad. I don't know if you heard this past week, but uh, Tyler Helinski, a 21-year-old Division I scholarship athlete from Washington State University, took his life. He was a quarterback. He was the presumed starter for next year's team. He had a really a great year um, as, a, as a backup to the guy who'd started and played in a lot of games. His family's from this area. Uh, he has two brothers, uh, both of his parents live in the area. Um, his older brother is uh, playing college football. His younger brother is a standout senior in Southern California. And this week, they have no earthly clue what would make their 21-year-old brother take his own life. He left a note, and so we pray that the family would find closure there. But for many, there's no closure. Uh, it this week after experiencing sort of the sadness associated with that, I, I have done a little bit of research to discover that it isn't uncommon for people to not know why, uh, to be thrown by uh, one of their relatives uh, taking their own life. I would have thought it would have been uh, the, the norm that you'd see all the signs. Um, and, and it happens rather frequently that some of the most peppy people or the people who seem to appear to have it all together on top of their game are suffering with a real dark uh, cloud over their lives. And uh, so this week, you can pray for the Holinsky family as they'll be laying their son to rest. Harvard Medical School has a psychology department that has pr printed a list of the three or the, I'm sorry, the six major triggers for taking one's own life. And one of them is a personal crisis, especially one that increases a sense of isolation. Isolation is a big part of the process of suicide. It would seem obvious that most, if, um, most people take their life on their own. If they had somebody they thought they could talk to, somebody who would listen, somebody who could empathize, it's conceivable that they wouldn't do it. Most who've experienced any breakdowns of any sorts can say that the most horrible part of it is the sense of loneliness. I know that was true for me. In the dark night of the soul I had nine years ago, which was brought on by a perfect storm of career failure, idolatry on my own part, spiritual depression, other people, thousands of miles from friends and family, and midlife. These three, four, five components together uh, took my feet out from under me and humbled me in a way I'd never been humbled before. And I can tell you that of all the pain I experienced in that, it was those days alone by myself in the house where I thought I'd really messed up my life and my family's life. That sense that no one could understand what I was going through that there was no one to talk to. 
We continue our series in the Gospel of John with a particular focus on John 1.14, which is a verse that I believe can offer genuine comfort to those who feel like they're all alone. Uh, it happens to also be a good verse that we would use as review. Uh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is what John has been telling us. The Word was God. This is what we picked up so far through two messages in the prologue of John, which is kind of the introductory piece that tells you what's coming, the overarching themes on the way. James Boyce says that John 1.14 was the great sentence for which the Gospel of John was written, given that the overarching purpose of John's Gospel is to clarify who Jesus is. And as we know, the Logos, the Word, came to make God known. John says in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, has made, He has made Him known. See, speaking of Jesus coming to make the Father's character, attributes, love known to us. We celebrate Christmas annually, culturally. I'm glad for that. Many sing carols worshiping Emmanuel, which means God with us, without realizing they're singing the very heart of the gospel, which is that God didn't leave us at a distance, isn't standing at a distance, that he is with us. Oftentimes we lack the comprehension of the good news that God genuinely sought us out. We were alienated from him and unable to naturally and confidently be certain of his love. Paul reiterates this theme in his letter to the Colossians, restating what John and other New Testament writers have said. Jesus preexisted before the creation of the world. Paul wrote about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There have been times in my life where I've struggled and, uh, and seen others struggle and thought, why is it that God doesn't just shazam and, and like immediately kind of transform things? What, you know, it, he is all-powerful, so it is conceivable he could do that. Every now and again you hear of somebody receiving a miracle healing or deliverance. But most of the time what you see is people plodding through a process of becoming more like Christ you see our world, which never seems to get any traction in terms of improving. One portion of our societal ills will start to fade, and uh, a fresh new ba a batch makes themselves known. You see human brokenness in generation after generation, and you wonder, maybe you don't, I do, why doesn't God just immediately enter into human history and fix it all? I've been comforted of late by writings from the Puritan John Owen. And uh, he says this about the method God uses. God goes about saving us a certain way because it seeks to glorify the entirety of the triune God. Owen writes, The whole purpose of grace is to glorify the whole trinity. 
And the way this is done is by reaching up to the Father's love through the work of the Spirit and the blood of the Son. Divine love begins with the Father, is carried on then by, by the Son, and then communicated to us by the Spirit. The Father purposes, the Son purchases, and the Holy Spirit effectively brings it to pass. Uh, today, I jokingly say this from time to time, I'm going to go Calvary Chapel on you. I'm going to focus on one verse and one verse only. If you're not familiar with the legacy of Chuck Smith, who founded Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and really is the grandfather of the movement of Calvary Chapel churches around the world, uh, the, one of their pillars was, at least initially, verse-by-verse verse exposition. And so you could go to a Calvary Chapel church and have a whole sermon on just a single word sometimes. Today I'll go as short as I go, which is a single verse. And, and it's because this verse is so packed densely with all of the things that we would know, need to know to, to know divine comfort in great times of strain. Our first section of John 1.14, while we have been looking at the divinity of Christ, and we'll see that theme revisited again and again, John 1.14 declares that Jesus was fully human. And the Word became flesh. This is the first thing I want you to see today. The Word became flesh. The preexistent Word became a human being to rescue human beings. And this is no small thing because it necessitated a sacrifice on Jesus' part before he ever got to the cross, a willingness to be born into human form, a willingness to leave what had to be considerably more comfortable circumstances in heaven with everybody worshiping you, and you come here and your people reject you. We know that Jesus took on the burden of human flesh. And some may say, why is that so burdensome? And it's burdensome by comparison. It certainly speaks of great joy ahead for those who are his children. We will know no crying, no dying, no suffering, no stress. We will certainly not know rejection. We will not know people who don't love us. D.A. Carson contends that the use of the word flesh is meant to draw attention to the entry of the word into the full flow of human affairs. See, Jesus experienced real temptations, not fake ones. It wasn't like he was kind of pretending he was being tempted. He genuinely was tempted by the devil. You can read it in Matthew 4. Jesus was also betrayed by friends. He was abandoned by people. He was let down by family and was the only human who could really understand what he was going through. If anyone knew isolation, if anyone knew I'm all by myself in this, it would have been Jesus. And so Jesus can genuinely understand what you and I are going through. The writer of Hebrews has a great comfort given to us in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, which says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The beauty of the gospel is that it frees us from any fear that entering into the presence of God would cause our undoing. Grace, Jesus' love for us, the forgiveness that comes to us through Christ opens the door for us to enter in in our greatest times of need to find empathy and help. While tempted as we are, he didn't give in to temptation. While experiencing the pain of stress, he didn't give in to despair and give up. He knows we are flesh. Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Whereas believers before Jesus held on to the promise of God's word by faith, we now have a living example of the Son of God experiencing our pain and our suffering, our trials and temptations, and empathizing with us, being patient with us, being tender towards those who struggle. And this is why the Apostle John will later in his account give great detail about Jesus' passionate prayer for us, even in the midst of his own suffering. He was thinking and performing his now ongoing role of interceding for us. Nine years ago, in the midst of my severe life crisis, I received a phone call from my brother-in-law, Kurt. Uh, This is Carolyn's brother. Uh, Even though he's a year older, they went through school together, and uh, she had some great stories to tell about her brother. And at the time, she was attending church with one of my five sisters, and uh, when describing her brother, Kurt, who shares a lot in common with me, um, pretty high energy, pretty strong-willed, given to risk and entrepreneurial venture type stuff, um, my sister thought, wow, if you can stand your brother, um, there's a chance you might be able to stand mine. And so she said to Carolyn, uh, how about I set you up on a blind date with my brother? And Carolyn agreed, and 27-plus years later, here we are, hon. My brother-in-law called during that season of my life to tell me this wasn't the only, these weren't the only characteristics that we had in common. He had shared with me for the first time that he'd had a really difficult, dark night of the soul as well. And simply knowing that he'd experienced that, that I wasn't crazy or any crazier than he thought to begin with, um, that I wasn't alone was so helpful. And that's all he wanted me to know. I'm thinking about you. I'm with you in spirit, even if I'm 2,000 miles away in New Jersey. I can't tell you how important that was to know that somebody could empathize with what I was going through. And this is really the beautiful first truth of John 1.14. Jesus was made flesh. He gets it, friend. He's not run out of patience with you. Quite the contrary, he's endless in his patience with you. You can't shock him. He's, he's not going to tire of you. Others may tire of me complaining about my same sadness, but 
Jesus doesn't. Jesus was fully human. The, the second great truth of John 1.14 is that Jesus resides in us by the Spirit. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Unlike my family and friends who lived thousands of miles away and had to call on the phone to encourage me, the New Testament teaches that God is near to us, so near to believers that He actually lives within you by His Holy Spirit. As we saw in John 1.12, whoever received Him, He gave them the right to become the children of God. We don't have to travel far to experience the presence of God, the comfort of the Lord's presence. We have him inside. John says he is a witness to this glory. Some may think that this is a reference to uh, seeing Jesus after his resurrection. Well, that certainly did confirm what they all knew to be true, but that's not what he's talking about. Some think John may be referring to the time where he and his brother and Peter saw Jesus transfigured before them, and that certainly was a glorious moment. But he is speaking more generally about the entirety of the life, the visit of the incarnate God into human flesh, and the glory of God that we now get to see through the love of Christ, through the person of Christ. We see that this was not an easy thing for those who were looking for a different kind of Messiah to embrace. And we certainly recognize that in his time and place, there were many, particularly the religious of his day, that thought he was off his rocker for claiming that he preexisted. We see in John 8, verses 56 through 59, Jesus addressing the Jews and saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day He sought and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, the the Jews weren't trying to kill Jesus because he was telling everybody, Love your neighbor. And summarizing the Old Testament by saying, Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The Jews were trying to stone Jesus because he claimed to be God. He claimed to pre-exist. He claimed that he saw Abraham from afar. He existed before their father Abraham. They were simply doing what they thought was the right thing to do, which was to stone a blasphemer. You hear this echo in what John the Baptist's was saying in John 1.15, his declaration about the unique glory of Jesus. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. See, even John, who chronologically was born before Jesus, recognized the divinity of Christ. Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, now lives in us. And John's use of the phrase, and dwelt among us, is highly significant for our understanding of the proximity of of God to us. The phrase literally means he pitched his tent among us, which harkens back to the Israelite journey through the wilderness, whereby the Israelites carried with them the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the temple of God. And the glory of God followed along with them in a cloud, 
and entered this tabernacle into the Holy of Holies where the Word of God existed. The law of God is given to Moses. And only the high priest with sacrifices could go into this Holy of Holies. The, the, the Word of God, the, the presence of God were the literal center of Jewish community, both physically and socially. And so they built their world around the presence of God, the dwelling place of God. And Jesus is saying, John is saying about Jesus, he tabernacled, he pitched his tent with us. Jesus now inhabits by his Holy Spirit the hearts of believers. They are referred to as the temple of God. Believers were promised this when Jesus said in John 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In you. Jesus resides in us. I never had a dog growing up. Uh, as a matter of fact, we weren't a dog family. Uh, I, I couldn't get why people were so attached to these animals. I certainly never understood the phrase, like, dog is man's best friend. Um, until I got a dog, uh, my daughter got one from me when uh, we moved once to plant our first church. It was, we had to blackmail our kids to participate in that process with us. Uh, Nick got an a PS2, I think it was, and Holly got a dog. Um, this dog very quickly uh, became everything you'd hope for in a dog. And I can tell you that nine years ago, when I would wander around the house some days by myself all day long, sometimes ultra sad, this dog never left my side, not once. There was just something great about his presence with me. I'm not alone on this, though. Pause for Purple Hearts is one of several organizations using dogs to help combat veterans cope with post-traumatic stress disorder. Researchers are finding that bonding with dogs actually has biological effects. It elevates level of the hormone oxytocin, which improves trust and helps reduce anxiety. There, there's just no substitute for someone's presence. When you have a tragedy in your life, when someone you love passes, when your heart gets broken, you don't need a bunch of people giving you trite advice or even quoting Bible verses at you. All they need is you. Just be present. Well, this is the great truth of the gospel. The Father assures us he never leaves us or forsakes us. We've been promised, even in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, Jesus says, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We have been promised the very presence of God. He resides in us by his spirit. He loves us. And the great reality of the gospel is our third point from John 1.14. He rescues humanity by his grace. We have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I have a concern about Christian churches like ours. 
we talk about grace a lot because we want people who haven't been in church for a while to know that God warmly receives them back into collective community fellowship. We, we want people to know that if you genuinely are a Christian, God's not mad that you haven't been around in a while. He's really glad that you have decided to help your own heart by being around Christians who would be encouraging to you. We, we very much want people to understand that you can't lose your salvation. You, once you're a child of God, you have the grace of God for all of eternity. You have the presence of God in your life for all of eternity. So we talk about grace a lot. But that can then sometimes fall on deaf ears. When Carolyn and I went to Orlando for me to go to seminary, we were very excited when we arrived at the apartment complex and discovered that there was one top floor apartment remaining. And we liked the top floor because they had vaulted ceilings. And it wasn't until that night that we realized why that unit was available. It backed up to the local fire station. And at 2 a.m., many nights, those alarms would go off, those trucks would pull out, and you'd awake from a deep slumber to another life <laughs> being you know, hurt or injured, the emergency people leaving with great haste. And as disturbing as that was, as, as much of an interruption as that was at first, you know that within a few months, we could have the sliding glass door onto our porch open and take naps. The sound of that siren became just a part of the background noise of our life. And if we're not careful, the notion of God's grace can do the same to us. We can be like, yeah, yeah, and it won't amaze us. It becomes a part of the noise of our lives, and instead of shocking us, like, wow, and it should shock us, the definition of grace is unmerited favor, which means we haven't done anything to get it, and we can't do anything to keep it, hence it's unmerited and this is what the gospel is telling us. We don't deserve anything, and we should be amazed at how gracious God is, even in the midst of what might seem like difficult circumstances. In verses 16 and 17 of John 1, we are told, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. The meaning of the phrase grace upon grace is that Christ brings one blessing after another, and all of it independent of our goodness, independent of any righteousness in us. It's a gift of his righteousness in us. His presence in us is what gives us the favor of God. The fullness of grace and truth doesn't come to us all at once. It's a progression of experiences that helps us grow in our comprehension of the depth and breadth of God's love. Jesus personified this grace. John would say, the Gospel of John would say that the Old Testament made clear presentation of God's holiness, but now God's mercy and love were on vivid display. Commentators have different takes on verse 17, which says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson thinks. This isn't a comparison between two different paradigms. He would say that Moses was presenting the law or the truth and Jesus was presenting the complete package, the truth and grace. 
another theologian, the one who I'm largely leaning on in this study, uh, James Boyce says that there is a stark contrast between the law and grace and truth and that the law tells you you must be righteous on your own and if you are righteous, then you can earn these blessings, whereas the gospel of grace and truth says righteousness is a gift from God to you and all of his blessings are a result of that grace. He has made you righteous, and so therefore you are a beneficiary of his unmerited favor. Either way, what the passage is really saying is, is that Jesus is the fullness of grace. That we now, if you have Christ in your living being, if you have Jesus, if you walk with him, if you know him, if you are secure in him, he has promised he's with you. He has promised he's experienced what you've experienced. He knows your frame. He has great empathy for your struggle. And he wants you to know the fullness of his grace, that his blessing upon blessing is coming to you because of his unmerited favor, his grace. John Owen says, The Father actually invests Christ with all the grace which, by agreement, he has purchased and which is necessary for bringing many sons to glory. He was invested with a fullness of that grace which is needful for his people. Christ himself calls this the power of giving eternal life to his elect. Being actually invested with this power, privilege, and fullness, he gives the Spirit the right to take of this fullness and give it to us. What Jesus wants the children of God to know is that he's constantly with you. He never leaves you. And even if you should forget that, he's still there. More importantly, Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding in addition to the presence of the Holy Spirit being with you. you you're covered up above, you're covered down below. The grace of God is built upon these blessings upon blessings of knowing that you are rock solid and secure. You may feel at times alone, and, and I know that feeling. You may feel that others are tired of your whining, and I've felt that on a number of occasions myself. And you may say, no one really knows how, uh, uh, how much this hurts. And there are certainly many here who could identify with you. None of that will make much difference to you when you're by yourself because we're not with you. But guess who is always with you? You are never alone in a house by yourself. You are never alone at work by yourself. You are never walking the streets alone if you're a child of God. The presence of the Holy Spirit is with you continuously to, to just bless you with more of his love and grace, with more of his pre- a sense of his presence and a sense of his great empathy for whatever it is that you're battling. My prayer today would be that communion for us would be another tactile reminder of that. As you take the bread and dip it in wine or juice, it would remind you that Jesus ate bread too. Jesus drank wine too. Jesus lived an earthy life 
and knows the struggles of our flesh. And he is the one that you can come to to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. So let's go and enter into his presence today and ask him for just that. Let us pray.